Welcome to the public rally. The sudden collapse of Silicon Valley Bank sent depositors into panic and global markets into chaos. After Silicon Valley Bank's collapse, Signature Bank followed. The news hit that First Republic, along with Credit Suisse, were also teetering on insolvency. At the time of this broadcast, we've just noted that UBS, the largest bank in Switzerland, just purchased Credit Suisse. What were the main factors for this latest crisis? What does this mean for average consumers? What can the federal government do to head off any additional financial harm? Joining me to answer these and other questions is Professor Bruce Mizrock. Professor Mizrock is an economist at Rutgers University. Professor Bruce Mizrock, welcome to the public morality. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. When one hears bank failure, it becomes a reminder that we're back in the uh, pre-Glass-Steagall banking era, uh, dust bowls, bank holidays are just around the corner. Uh, my hyperbole notwithstanding, sir, how should we be looking at the current banking challenges? Well, uh, a lot was made of the distinction between Wall Street and Main Street in the last financial crisis. And, and, and I think you can continue to think of some aspects of this crisis as the same. Um, the, the main street here were a number of Silicon Valley firms. So that's the sense in which it's a little bit perhaps different than 2008 and 2009. Uh, SVB, the Silicon Valley Bank, had a lot of uh, depositors that were tech startups and, and, and also other even larger institutions like Roku uh, from, the, uh, from, from the Silicon Valley. Um, and the main street impacts of the closure were immediate. There were uh, tech firms, particularly startups that were not able to make their payroll. There were other firms then that might have lost money that they could have used for capital investment. And so there would have been very, very strong effects directly from the closing of the bank um, to uh, companies with payrolls and workers and families and homes, just like you and me. So, so Professor, does the uh, Fed raising interest rates play a role in what happened in this particular banking crisis? In this crisis, it, it definitely was the triggering factor. Um, the irony of the failure of SVB is, is that they held actually a very conservative portfolio. And I'll say conservative in the sense of credit risk, which is that they uh, owned about 57% of their assets were in US treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. These are assets that are considered to be very safe from the vantage point of credit risk because they're backed by the government. Uh, where uh, SVB had risk, though, was in uh, interest rates or market risk, which is that they had long maturity instruments like mortgages and, and also treasuries um, that were falling in value because the Fed was so rapidly raising interest rates. And the crux of the crisis is, is that there were market losses in the asset portfolio of SVB, which led some of its depositors uh, and then eventually many to want to try to withdraw their money from the bank. We, we, we talk, I mean, the Silicon Valley Bank made the headlines, but we're, we're talking about a, a number of financial institutions, including uh, First Republic, Credit Suisse. Uh, should we look at these situations holistically um, as, as the, the reason for their financial um, breakdown? Or is there, are, there, are they individual? Are there different factors here at play? Um, each is going to have some idiosyncratic factors, but but I would say 
as I've looked through the data now to try to see the common themes among the banks that have gotten into trouble, um, they share have operation in their portfolio. That meant that they had a lot of long-dated assets. Um, and of course, deposits are their liabilities and they're very short-term. You can remove them at any time. And what banks typically do is they typically hedge this interest rate risk that's in their portfolio using things like interest rate swaps or options. And what we can see commonly here is, is that the, the banks that are already in trouble that have failed, so that would include both SVB and Signature in the United States, and Credit Suisse has effectively failed. It's been taken over at a, a bargain basement price by, uh, by its uh, neighboring bank, UBS. So what we'll see common in each of those, we'll see a lot of duration or interest rate risk on these portfolios, not sufficient hedges to deal with it, and also depositors then that were uh, starting to flee the bank because they were worried about the riskiness on the bank's balance sheet. Again, not the credit risk, but the interest rate risk coming from rising rates. Um, and what we'll see across all these banks then will be those common exposures. Um, just like back in 2007 to nine, if you wanted to know who were the bad banks, you were primarily looking for banks that had the subprime exposure. This time you're looking for lots of banks that have unhedged interest rate risk on their balance sheet. Well, and to your last point, uh, as I recall, that Credit Suisse came out of the last crisis uh, in fairly good shape. I guess it's all relative, but in fairly good shape that they didn't take a uh, a bailout, a federal bailout. And and so that's a pretty rapid decline from where they were, say, in 2008, 2009 to where they are now being, as you stated, uh, being gobbled up by UBS at a, a really low price. Yeah, th there are essentially two banks in Switzerland that, that matter in terms of assets, and it's UBS and, and, and then Credit Suisse. And um, so this is a, a major, major headline. This would be analogous in the United States to something like JP Morgan failing. So um, this is news that is certainly first top of the headlines in, in Switzerland because of the fact that they have just the two major institutions. As far as their you know, changes since 2008 and 2009, I, I, what I would say still broadly is, is that um, all banks around the world abide by uh, these Basel regulations. These are regulations that come from uh, the Bank of International Settlements, which is based in Basel. And so we're up to Basel III. And so Basel III, uh, which attempts to try to make sure that banks hold safe asset structures, um, has really never gotten the mix between uh, credit risk and interest rate risk correctly. And so um, people superficially look at a bank like Signature, like SVB, or look at a bank like uh, Credit Suisse and say, oh, they have a lot of government securities on their portfolio. Or in the case of, of uh, SVB, a lot of mortgage-backed securities. Those are very stable because after all, those are held by the central bank. So they must be very stable assets. But they are from a credit risk perspective, but they are not subject to, in fact, large moves when interest rates rise as rapidly as they've been rising. So I think that... Um, Basel will have to have a Basel four in all likelihood um, if we want to make sure that this crisis, uh, which now is certainly international, um, isn't repeated again in the future. Well, that, that leads me, it's a perfect segue to my next question. Talk about the, the, the international concerns. We hear Silicon Valley Bank, we hear First Republic. Talk about the international impact of, of, of this crisis. So, Almost all banks are international now um, they, in the sense that they do business here. So Credit Suisse has a business in the United States doing investment banking. Credit Suisse makes markets in uh, U.S. equities. Uh, Credit Suisse is a 
major counterparty in the swaps market and so on. So all banks at this point, certainly the large banks that we've heard of and are in our day-to-day discussions are international banks. So inevitably, uh, something that starts in the US will migrate to Switzerland or migrate to England or to the continent of Europe um, and vice versa. Those, if banks there were suffering problems, there'd be partners here would, that would also be suffering problems. And this is the part that's potentially a bit unpalatable for you know, the US taxpayer, which is that sometimes we're actually forced to contribute as a country to a bank that's actually based elsewhere because we know it has impacts on our own banking system. Now, in the case of uh, the uh, Credit Suisse, it is the Swiss central bank that's intervening on behalf. But in fact, there was a coordinated effort among all the central banks this morning to provide liquidity to the system. So, so we are indeed working with our international partners to stabilize the banking system in its entirety because we know we cannot compartmentalize this risk. So let's say, uh, well, let, let's just take me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have, I have no money or or investment directly tied to Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank or, or Credit Suisse or First Republic. Why would I care about these latest developments? Well, first off, um, in, in terms of its impact among you know reg- regular folks, folks who work for a paycheck and so on, there 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 were many people in this situation, just in a different industry maybe than you and I work in. So there there are people who you know open the mail and uh, and uh, you know clean clean the gutters at uh, these tech firms in the Silicon Valley who draw a paycheck and and wouldn't be able to draw and weren't able to draw a paycheck for say at least a week because of the closing of this bank. So on the one hand, there are folks who are directly linked that are not necessarily wealthy investors or not necessarily folks who are betting on a big startup. They're just uh, uh, folks that are working for a paycheck every day who didn't get their paycheck because this bank closed. What we also know as we look for the exposures is, is that we know that there are banks all around the United States, and as we mentioned previously, all around the world that are similarly situated. And so if we don't plug the leak in some sense at Silicon Valley Bank, the next bank that may fail may be the place where you bank or where I bank. And so we try to stop contagion at the source if we can to make sure that it doesn't impact a larger set of folks than it have originally been impacted. One of the... Um arguments that I've heard a number of pundits take that for what it's worth, but they will argue that had this been Temecula Valley Bank, which is a uh, town in California instead of, say, Silicon Valley Bank, Mm -hmm. it would not have been propped up. So did the Biden administration, in your view, set a bad precedent in in its actions with Silicon Valley Bank, or, or was that the right course of action? How do you see that, sir? Well, uh, the the difficult decision to make from from a, let's say, policy standpoint here was whether or not to back all of the depositors in the the SVB bank. And that that question in in practice turned out not to be very difficult, which is to say that um, in, in practice, we know that the depositors are not the ones who are monitoring the bank and watching their asset exposures and watching what their duration risk is and so on. We know that there are uh, folks like you and me. They may they may be a little bit more prosperous. They may run businesses, but they're mostly focused on running their businesses, not watching what their bank is doing. So I think almost anybody, even if they don't have the same resources as these large depositors, can identify with the fact that we're we're busy with our lives. We're busy running uh, you know our businesses and our jobs, and we're not really paying attention to what our bank was doing. 
And so the, the Biden administration then made the decision uh, to declare this bank systemically important. Um, it's not systemically important in terms of its size. It's a $200 billion bank, which sounds like a big number, but for context, JP Morgan has more than $3 trillion in assets. So it's, uh, it's a medium-sized bank, uh, and it was declared systemically important um, in order to make sure that the depositors who had deposits above the $250,000 limit would also be reimbursed. And this so far seems to have been successful in that um, depositors now have full access to their money. Uh, the FDIC, who is the, the primary agency to step in in this instance, has guaranteed depositors. And so apart from this week where folks didn't have access to their money, you can now go to any branch of SVB or for that matter, any bank that's linked to SVB, take out your money with a, a, an ATM card, write a check, even if your check bounced last week, there's now a, an entity in place that's going to make you whole and make sure that you can get on with what you want to do, which is running your business, not worrying about whether or not your bank is going to close. So in the end, whether this was a political decision or not, in my opinion, it was the right decision. Aaron Klein of the Brookings Institute cited Silicon Valley Bank uh, had and hyper-reliance on uninsured deposits. That's 97% of the deposits were in excess of the FDIC limit of 250,000. Do you accept that premise as part of the problem uh, that led to this particular bank period? How do you see that, sir? Well, um, so the language that we use as economists when we talk about the liability side of a bank is uh, talking about their deposits is how sticky they are. And what we mean by sticky is, is how likely is it that uh, a set, a large set of depositors are going to coordinate and remove their money from the bank. So when you have a very concentrated deposit structure like you had at SVB, um, it is reported, I have not personally uh, verified it, but it's reported, for example, that Roku had $5 billion sitting in a single account in the bank. And so um, it, it is uh, certainly a, a bigger risk that money of that size is going to move. And so in that sense, uh, SVB was more vulnerable perhaps than other banks to runs. But I actually have taken a look at how concentrated the deposits are. And the bank that's actually in, in second place in terms of uh, a concentration of deposits um, is the Bank of New York, which is considered to be a stalwart of the system. So I would say using sort of math speak, but I'll, I'll translate it in just a second. I would say, yes, the concentration of deposits uh, contributes to a run. So it's a necessary, but not sufficient condition for a bank to fail as quickly as SVB did. Um, but there are sound banks that have almost as many and uh, almost the same size and concentration of deposits. Uh, staying with that theme and, mm -hmm. and specifically with Silicon Valley Bank, um, it also experienced very, very large growth. I mean, in a short period of time, so between 2019, it had 115 billion, 2022, December 2022, it had 211 billion. Was that type of explosive growth unique? Did it play a role in this situation? Um, or is that just an, uh, uh, an irrelevant factor? Uh, so, no, I mean, Silicon Valley Bank of the top 100 banks in the United States was the fastest growing over the past uh, three years. So um, it's definitely unique in its growth. Um, and, and, and I would say a, a contributing factor to this problem was that uh, risk controls did not grow in a way that was proportionate to the size. And so 
Um, we've all heard about uh, restaurants, for example, that are successful with two or three local franchises, but then they tend to fail when they grow too quickly, expanding into other areas and into perhaps other states or even other countries. Um, and something like that may very well have happened at SVB. They grew so quickly that they didn't have risk controls in place that enabled them to manage a much larger asset portfolio. I mean, we know that both the regulators and the private sector um, were aware of the lack of risk controls and the growth only made this demise uh, all that much bigger. And um, what about the role that the federal home loan bank plays in this? I know that uh, uh, Silicon Valley Bank had some 20 billion uh, tied up in uh, federal home loans. Uh, and the federal home loans get paid even before the FDIC insurance, um, FDIC insurance kicks in. So the larger the amount, the greater the burden of the taxpayer. Was that a scenario um, here in Silicon Valley Bank is, and, and also with Signature? And what is the taxpayer's role in all of this? Well, I would say SVB and also Signature, they needed liquidity. And people then just get liquidity where they can get it. And so where could SVB have potentially gotten it? They could have gotten it from other private banks. Uh, the fact that they did not indicates to me, even though I don't have the direct evidence, that other banks were not willing to lend with them, lend to them, certainly as this crisis uh, arose. Um, it is true, as you mentioned, that uh, banks that, for example, hold large portfolios of mortgage-backed securities can get liquidity from, from the FHLB um, against those assets. And uh, SVB drew on that line. I, I don't think they were particularly concerned about where FHLB would, was in the, in the credit queue. I think they were just simply grabbing whatever liquidity they could get. Um, and they've probably felt that the FHLB was a little bit less transparent than trying to take, take the money directly from the Fed through the deposit window or somewhere else. So they thought this was a way to draw liquidity um, and the fact that FHLB is in front of other creditors was not their concern. Their concern was just, you know, keeping the bank alive for another day. And what about the role of low interest rates? Um, I, I saw a special on Frontline, they dubbed it the age of easy money, and that really sounded like the Gilded Age. And, I, and does that, how, does that uh, factor in this all at all? Um, it, it does. It ties back a little bit to your earlier question, which is that we, we've been through uh, prior to, 20, to 2022, it was actually March 16th of the first rate set of rate increases in this cycle. So we had been through a, a, a period of, of uh, basically zero interest rates from roughly 2008 to 2022. And so it may be the case that, that folks uh, had started to ignore some of those risks. But but let's be clear, the, the Fed did not go from zero to five in one step. It went to zero to five in a series of steps. And um, what's interesting as I studied SVB's asset exposure and its hedges is, is that um, SVB was moving in exactly the wrong direction as interest rates were rising. As the interest rates rose over the past year, SVB was lengthening the duration of their asset portfolio and they were decreasing their asset hedges. And they essentially had no asset hedges as of the end of December 31st, 2022, which is the last public reporting that I see from their quarterly filings. So this was a bank that was actually taking on more and more interest rate risk as interest rates were rising and was reducing their hedges to that exposure as time went on. I would say in part to probably make, make it look like the profits were higher than they were. And this was just a, a, a game that they played, a dangerous game that they played. 
uh, with, as it turns out, a lot of taxpayer money at risk. Okay, my, my next question is from a young man named Brian, who um, is, is a college student. And uh, we were just having an idle conversation on Saturday. And I told him what the topic of my show was going to be. And so he, this question is for you, from Brian. Okay. He's, he says, you know, on the heels of the stock market crash in 29 came the Glass-Steagall Act that was passed in 33. Uh, then that was, Glass-Steagall was repealed in 99. And then there was a financial crisis uh, in 08. Uh, Dodd-Frank was put in place, what, 2010? That was repealed in 17. So here we are again. So his question is, uh, are we just in a cyclical place where there's a financial breakdown, there's reform, there's repeal, and then another crisis? How do you, <laughs> that, that, his question, are we just in, a, in a, just a, a cyclical place? Um, so uh, my general first general response is that um, I like to say that that credit and the payment system are sort of the plumbing of capitalism, and and it's a for me a good metaphor I think because it's a little bit like the plumbing in our in our, in our houses. Um, we probably really don't know how to fix it. Um, it may actually be a bit more complex than we realize, but. Um, and and we just automatically expect that it's going to work, which is, you know, when we flush our toilets or turn on our, our, our taps, um, we're expecting the toilet to flush and we're expecting the water to run and be and, and be potable. Um, and, and so we're always surprised then uh, on these instances, which maybe aren't so rare, as Ryan indicates, that um, where one of those two functions breaks down. And so in the case of SVB, uh, the payment system broke down, firms Firms in, in the in the Silicon Valley were not able to make their payroll. Could people couldn't access their their money in their bank accounts, use their ATM cards or cash checks, um, and the credit part will play out over time. We'll see what happens to the loan portfolio of SVB as the as the bank itself is unwound. Um, and so, what I what I would also remind folks though is, and I'll stay within my plumbing analogy if that's okay, um, which is that plumbing has evolved. I mean, we we used to. Uh, probably just go out in the woods, and then we developed outhouses, and then maybe portable potties, and um, eventually we got indoor plumbing, and now we have toilets that talk to us. And the same thing is true with credit and payments, which is that there's our, our innovations. And uh, what are some of the ones that Ryan, I'm sure, is familiar with? He's familiar with Venmo. Well, Venmo is obviously competing with your bank. It's uh, trying to take over some portion of the payment stream. Uh, more broadly and more controversial, of course, are, are blockchain and digital-based asset payments. These are definitely competitors to your bank. Um, and then as it comes to credit, what we've realized is, is that there are lots of ways to obtain credit that don't require a bank. And so these innovations are moving forward because there are profit opportunities and people see opportunities that, that, that traditional banks might not be providing. And so because of this, it's, I, I think, almost inevitable that regulation will lag um, the, uh, the, the innovations that are coming into the economy. That, however, is not a proper fit for this story, because uh, I want to go, go back to one of my original comments, which was that um, in this case, uh, it wasn't the case that SVB had a complicated portfolio, had a very uncomplicated portfolio. The Fed was well aware of what the risks were. And I think what the executives at SVB are ultimately going to have to answer, whether it's in court or in front of Congress, 
is why they were not hedging exposures that they knew that they were exposed to. Um, and if they were motivated for the wrong reasons or did some things that might have run afoul of the law, they'll have to face those consequences. So um, the first line here is, is, uh, is to be answered by SVB, in my opinion, not by the regulators. Because we, we have um, four, four institutions at the time of this uh, conversation. Um, within those four institutions, to your knowledge, um, unlike uh, the crisis in 2008, where, where does greed factor in this crisis? Well, um, there have been stories. I, I don't know the exact dates and times or amounts. There have been stories, though, that the uh, executives at SVB paid themselves some bonuses just prior to the failure of the bank. Um, there may be some remedies under law to claw back those bonuses, which is for taxpayers or FDIC or other creditors to claw back some of those bonuses. And those may in the end happen. Um, but I, 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 my reading of the, of the leaves here and from the way that they were reducing their interest rate hedges says to me that the bank was um, per, perhaps uh, becoming very, very short term in its focus and, and might have done some actions that were not in the best interest of depositors and certainly not in the best interest of taxpayers. And because greed is a variable uh, that cannot uh, be regulated per se, um, I, I know some some will will, will take a you know, take offense to this, especially my, my my free market gurus. But it seems to me that there has to be some sort of regulation. And how how do you see that? Because you you can't you can't regulate greed. Well, uh, so so again, um, I, I would say that there are, there are two functions of the banking system that we regard as something like public utilities. And they're the ones I've mentioned. The, the first is the uh, payments mechanism. We want to make sure that, um, I, I believe you're in North Carolina, I'm here in New Jersey. I want to make sure that a check that I write to you uh, can transfer safely and, and hopefully quickly. Uh, one of these days, it may be faster than three days uh, between my bank here in New Jersey and your bank in North Carolina. Um, so that part of the system is a public utility and the Fed works very, very hard to maintain it. And I would still say it was their primary motivation for intervening in this case. Um, credit, as it turns out, is a little bit more complicated, but we definitely know that, that businesses want to grow. It's the backbone of capitalism. You have one branch of your bank, you want to have 10 branches. You have one restaurant location, you want to have 10. You have one auto shop, you want to build up to 10. And typically this requires credit. And so the Fed has some prudent regulation in place to try to protect both the payments mechanism and also uh, the growth of credit in the economy. And the Fed was on duty in this job. I mean, the, the, the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, who would have been the first line regulator here, had made warnings about SVB as early as December of 2021. Um, in 2022, uh, the, the Fed had declared that, uh, that, that the uh, bank was, uh, in fact, no longer allowed to make acquisitions because it had crossed a certain level of risk in its asset portfolio. Um, and we're not yet privy to the internal dialogues at the at, at the banks or between the regulators, but um, certainly there there were folks at the at the Federal Reserve who were raising the red flags, and um, and the fact that they didn't take action until the bank collapsed may not have been their fault. So uh, the point being that um, we cannot expect depositors to monitor and regulate this bank. 
Um, and we know that these credit and, and payment systems are fundamental to the functioning of our economy. So we regulate. And, and of course, since this is a, a country that's large, we have multiple regulators. We have the OCC, the Comptroller of the Currency. We have the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the Federal Reserve Banks, home loan banks will also do some monitoring. Um, and so uh, it was the case here that the, 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 the regulators were aware of the risk. They just simply weren't ready in sufficient time to close the bank before this was able to spread. We've, we've talked uh, specifically about financial institutions, mm -hmm. uh, but rising interest rates mean larger payments on the federal debt. Uh, given um, how much borrowing was done when interest rates were low, in that scenario, coupled with um, the, what's happened to these four banks, um, what is to prohibit the U.S. economy from delving into an uncharted financial collapse? Well, the irony of, of the financial crisis, both in 2007 to 9 and the current one, is that the United States is still ultimately seen as the safest place to deposit your money. And so the irony of this crisis, as, as the one uh, 12 years ago, is that the short-term effects have been to lower interest rates in this country. So uh, the one that I've looked at, and it's probably the one most relevant for our federal debt, is to look at the 10-year bond yield. And so since SVB came to light about uh, two weeks ago now, uh, the uh, yield on the 10-year bond has fallen by 50 basis points. So believe it or not, um, SVB at the moment is making it easier for the government to borrow, not harder. Is there any way for the federal government to get out of a reactionary posture and become proactive, at least in this scenario, that they could potentially head off in, um, future problems if, if this bleeds into other banks? Well, there, there has been some thought, and, and I would be a supporter of some version of it, of the Fed getting directly involved in the payment system and, and to some degree taking over some of the functions of the private sector. Um, this could happen through a variety of channels. One step that's already coming online is something called FedNow, which is going to be a, a, a very quick payments mechanism. And this might be a way that you can um, purchase uh, your groceries or purchase something at the hardware store uh, directly from your bank with very little or no fees at all. Um, and the second step, more, which is more risky, uh, but, but one that certainly the Fed is contemplating, as have other central banks, is to move towards a digital currency, um, which could have even lower interchange fees than the FedNow system and potentially be faster. The, the FedNow system um, uh, you know, still requires the banks. Uh, the, the digital system uh, potentially could completely cut the banks out of the payment mechanism. And you and I could just uh, exchange money by, just by touching our credit cards to one another. Why do we necessarily need a bank in between the two of us? And so there's thought of doing that. Some countries have started to move towards it. And the Federal Reserve has been studying it. And so I would say, yes, there's a, a way for the Fed to be more proactive, certainly with respect to the payments mechanism in providing ways to safely um, help folks, uh, you know, settle debts at the grocery store, at the hardware store, debts between you and me, and, and even possibly pay their employees in this fashion without having to use a bank. Um, you can understand that there'll be a lot of pushback from the folks that are currently making money from all those systems. 
just out of curiosity, you talk about the digital piece. I'm, I'm wondering, does that does that uh, move us closer to legitimizing the Bitcoin world? Well, no, not Bitcoin per se. It, it would legitimize the blockchain, which is a technology. The, Bitcoin is just one example uh, of a of a Bitcoin of a, of a blockchain asset. Um, I think what I'm contemplating and the Fed is contemplating is what's called a central bank digital currency. And the issuer would not be a, a private entity or, or a consortium. It would be the Fed itself. And you and I would just exchange these Fed tokens, basically, um, to settle payments. And it could be very fast. It could be 24-7. And it almost certainly would be cheaper than the current system that we have now. So as an economist in, in, in your uh, observing um the actions uh, of the federal government, so I guess specifically because all these things at some point become political, whether we want them to or not. Um, your assessment of what the, the, the current administration has done to uh, address this problem? Um, there, there's a, a, an expression that I think most economists would subscribe to, which is um, you don't worry about moral hazard in a crisis, which is to say, um, you see someone drowning in a lake and it's not the time to say, well, there was a sign up that said, don't swim in the lake. You don't then rescue, not rescue the person because there was a sign up that said, don't swim in the lake. We rescue the person. And then we think about maybe later putting a fence around the lake so that people don't swim there. And I think that analogy applies here. Um, the Fed and the FDIC did not have to declare this institution systemically important. They could have allowed large depositors like Roku to lose much, if not all, of their money. Um, but in fact, the, the, the steps that they thought would restore confidence in the system were to protect all the depositors and bring the bank online as quickly as possible. And so in that sense, I think they've been successful. Um, people will try to point out that, oh, well, this particular bank uh, you know, was in, in, in a democratic state or something like that. Is it mattering? It wouldn't have mattered if there, if there was a system systemically important bank in, in uh, you know, in Iowa or Indiana, which are, are red states, the Fed would have acted the same. So um, we think that the, the system is interconnected and it doesn't matter whether the bank is in a blue state or red state, you rescue the folks that are involved because we're all in this together, as they say. Well, well you, you just said that Roku had what, 50 billion? Five billion. Uh, is, five is, billion, is, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, yeah. I said 50, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm looking at a 50 or five billion. Mm -hmm. um, but they don't they buy Roku's in red states? Um, yeah, so so I, I, I agree. If uh, you're you're, I, I wasn't even really thinking about it from the consumer angle. But but yes, of course, if uh, that business shut down even temporarily, and uh, folks who wanted the Roku makes a streaming device, I actually happen to own one of them, and. Yeah, you might be upset if it if for the next three months there were no streaming devices from Roku available uh, because they had to shut down of the, because of this banking crisis. So yes, there's a, a main street component both in terms of the stakeholders in the company, so the workers who work for Roku, the people who uh, sell Roku's, and and of course from the consumer side, the people who like Roku's and want to use the products and might not have access to them if they lose access to credit. And not to mention the multiplier effect to just basic economics, um, what that would have done to everyone related to Roku um, if they could no longer meet their their debts. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, when when my neighbor loses my loses his or her job, um, this is going to impact uh, all the stores in the area, not just that household. So it, it ripples through a community, and particularly if. Uh, 
any of these communities had a large number of Roku workers or a large number of people who made payroll at SVB, um, yeah, they're, they're, uh, some of these folks are, are better off than we are, but um, the, the banking system is a, a, a network to which we're all connected and we all need the plumbing to work regardless of whether it's in California or Indiana. I'm going to ask you to put your prognosticator hat on for a moment. So what happens from here? So um, what, what I tell my students is, is I, I tell them, don't read the news, look at asset prices. And so um, all I can tell you is what the asset prices are telling me right now. And I'll tell you which ones that you should follow. Um, the first is there's an ETF, an exchange traded fund uh, called QABA, which tracks the community banks in the United States. That particular index is down 20% over the last month, which is a very, very large move. These are conservative and safe stocks in most normal environments. So if QABA continues to deteriorate, it will tell me that there's more problems in the, in the small to mid-sized banking sector than have currently be, been realized by the, by the markets. You can also then follow, not as easily, um, what are called credit default swaps. These are basically, uh, they're derivative securities that will pay off in the event of bankruptcy of individual institutions. And so you can see credit default swaps trading on all of the major financial institutions. So for instance, UBS has taken over Credit Suisse and that has, at least in the short term, stabilized the system. On the other hand, the price of credit default swaps on, on UBS has continued to rise because people feel like they've taken on the risk from another institution. So I will be following the credit default swaps on all the major financial institutions around the world to tell me whether this risk has been contained. Um, finally, we have Fed policy coming up this week. I think it's already baked in that we're not going to get the 50 basis point increase that we might have had had it not been for the collapse of the of SVB and some related banks. We're going to get a smaller interest rate move. And the one advantage of that is, is that those facing duration risk are going to be, in effect, helped out by slightly less aggressive Fed policy. Um, but again, uh, we may find that there are other folks who are also badly situated as these banks were, and it may be that even 25 basis points is too much. So I would say follow the news, and the news is going to tell you the story more cleanly than what you hear um, either in print or on the, on the television, but perhaps not on this podcast. This podcast, uh, uh, notwithstanding, I was uh, thinking about your point, though, that, that uh, UBS taking over Credit Suisse. I'm trying to find a proper uh, analogy. Would that be like Microsoft buying taking over Facebook. I mean, I don't, I don't know how big that is. I mean, it's pretty, it's a big move, right? I, I'm trying to understand. Well, well there, there are basically two banks in Switzerland of consequence. I'm sure there are many more, no offense to your Swiss uh, listeners, but um, they're the two big banks. It's, uh, it would be the equivalent of uh, JP Morgan, for example, acquiring Citibank. So it's the two, one, one of the two largest banks in the entire country acquiring the other. Um, the thing I will add, though, is, is that this acquisition took place also with backing of a credit line from the Swiss National Bank, which is their central bank. So, um, indeed, the central bank is backing this takeover in an attempt to stabilize the system. But, of course, yes, this is huge news in Switzerland when the two biggest banks, uh, one of them dies after a, a very, very long history to be absorbed by the other. It's very, very big news. And, and again, it couldn't have happened without the cooperation of all the similar authorities in Switzerland, both the government, their federal government. And also, of course, the, the the bank bank regulators and the central bank. And and finally, what, what would be the international ramifications, uh, specifically here here in the United States, on, 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 on a move like that? 
Um, so uh, banks are all linked together. If you had access to, and 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 only the regulators do, had access to the cross-asset exposures, um, you may be very, very surprised to find that there's a, a bank in Illinois, and, and again, I don't know this, this is just an example, that actually has a lot of counterparty exposure to a bank in Switzerland. That's the way the world works today. We don't know where uh, uh, an individual bank or securities firm's asset exposures are. And uh, when we're talking about a firm as big as Credit Suisse, we're not we're talking not only about their impact on the payment system, right? So it may be that um, you have some you own some loans that were initiated by Credit Suisse. They could be on your portfolio. You could be uh, a trader in a stock in which Credit Suisse makes markets. You could be a stock which is trying to go public and was expecting capital from Credit Suisse in order to go public. Once the once the bank portion of this larger conglomerate fails, its other functions also fail and can ripple around the world in, in, in directions that you could never anticipate. And Lehman is just the anticipation of this. Uh, Lehman didn't hold any customer deposits. It was an investment bank. There were no depositors on the line there. But as it turned out, it wound up having ripple effects on banks all around the world. Professor Bruce Mizrock, sir, I want to thank you so much for enlightening us uh, on the world of economics here on the public morality. Much appreciated, sir. Well, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. And uh, I, I hope it was of some benefit to your listeners. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public rally at their studios. The public rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the public morality, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>